Turn to Ezra chapter 1, if you would, please. And join me in prayer. Father, today we celebrate the reality of uh, Jesus being our rock and redeemer as we come at the end of this time to partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, truly, this is a time of high worship, and I pray that it would be received in such a way. I pray for us now as we continue to worship. We've been worshiping in every element of what we've been doing, the singing of your word, the uh, praying of your word, the reading of your word, and now we will hear your word preached and respond to it. I pray, I pray that like we'll be reading in a few moments, that our hearts would be stirred to have us do what you call us to do. And uh, Lord, at the end of this time, as we have worshiped, even by seeing the word, the gospel expressed in the Lord's Supper, that we would go forth as changed people, changed more into the image of Christ, not perfect, we know that we have a long way to go, but today would be a little part in that process of sanctification as we grow into the image of Christ. So help us now as we look to your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In my preparation for the message today, and you'll see it runs the gamut, three basic realities out of chapters 1 and Two, as we finish chapter one, but I, I read an interesting title. I don't remember if it was an article or a sermon or just a commentary that said this, and I thought about the message that I preached last week on God's sovereignty as he moves in his uh, world and in his people. The, the title of this article or this sermon said, God will move history for his people. Somehow, while that was good, it didn't quite get at, I think, what the Bible would more accurately say. Certainly, God does move history, but it seems a little bit too people-centered, and so I thought a better way of expressing that, and this is what we've seen last week, and we'll see it again this week, God will move His people for history. The return of Judah from captivity was God's way of preparing them to again be a global blessing. Now, I, I hope that you, you remember. Some of you are new to us, so we need to go back probably and remind you that from the very beginning, God had a plan for the Jews for his people in human history, and he wanted them to be a blessing. That was the call of Abraham, wasn't it? There was a top line, there was a bottom line. Top line, I will bless you. Bottom line, I want you to go out and to bless the nations. And ultimately, they would do that when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came on the scene. But even, even now, God is restoring that call to his covenant people. You remember from last week, Jeremiah prophesied 
What would happen when Cyrus the king gave the proclamation that the Jews were going to go back to Judah and to rebuild the temple? And we're going to discover what that really refers to in a minute. But here's something else that Jeremiah said. This was a hundred years before it happened. He's talking about this city, Jerusalem. Shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory to whom? Just for themselves? No, for all of the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it, the city of Jerusalem. Now, I want you to to bring that up to now. And in a very real way, God has called His covenant people, the church, to do exactly the same. You and I come to know Jesus Christ by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, believing in the shed blood that we will be celebrating in a few moments, visibly taking it as it were, into our bodies. But when we come to the church of Jesus Christ through salvation, we join the covenant people of God. Jesus tells us to follow me. And His ultimate goal for us as as a body of Christ and as individuals, no matter what our age, is this. Paul said it in Colossians. We Proclaim Him, Jesus Christ, above all else that we do, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. That's not the world's wisdom, not my wisdom, but the wisdom from the Word. So that why? So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Folks, that is my goal. That is the goal of the elders of this church, of every leader of this church, and we don't get there automatically. I said a minute ago, Jesus said, follow me. Do you remember what he said before that? A lot of people say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm following Jesus. Now, wait a minute. Are you doing what he said to do before he said, follow me? Luke 9, 23, that's the, the memory verse that we had a while back. What does he say to do before we can follow him? If any man wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross every day, daily, and follow after me. So here we have, by way of a reminder, God's call to his covenant people, the Jews, through Cyrus, the king of Persia, to all of the Jews that were held in captivity, about a million strong. We don't see that from the scriptures, but historians say that, that they were probably about a million strong. Now, can you imagine, and, and they had, we'll see this in a minute, they'd settled in. They were probably, the Jews were probably quite prosperous in the land of Babylon. And all of a sudden, this pagan king, because of the word of God that came to him through Jeremiah the prophet, he said, I'm going to let all of you go back to Judah, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to let you rebuild the temple. Here's what it says. While the call was given to all, the proclamation was given to all, God stirred the hearts of some, and some responded. 
You've got to see that the majority stayed in Babylon. There are probably some reasons for that. To follow God back then, not to mention today, meant a journey filled with many hardships. Their task would be met with opposition. It would further mean that everyone was going to have to make a firm commitment to the task that God had given them. They might have to leave behind, listen to me, what they considered to be good, or maybe at least okay, for what God said would be best. But we're going to see in this passage of Scripture and this teaching today that God would provide for them. Guess what? The lesson is that He will provide for you and for me, for our church in whatever task He calls us to, as long as we will make the commitment to leave all and follow Christ. So, we're going to look at three different commitments that are necessary. They were necessary then. They are absolutely necessary right now. Heritage so let's look first of, all, first of all at chapter 1, and I, I'm going, it says on your outline, verses 3 and 5, that's, that's where we're really starting, but to do a little bit of a review, let's back up so that we can see the proclamation of Cyrus. Chapter 1, Ezra, and verse 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, remember, it, the prophecy was given a hundred years earlier, might be fulfilled. And by the way, for some of you who weren't here, we also looked at the amazing fact that Isaiah also prophesied in 160 years before this event, he actually named the name of Cyrus. And we talked about the certainty of prophecy. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it into writing. Not right now, but if you want to really be blessed about how that there is nothing left undone in the economy of God, then you just underline that little phrase, he also put it into writing, because we're going to see later on in chapter 6 that Darius the king then, who had forgotten the proclamation, searched out for, guess what, the writing, and he found it. It's a marvelous, marvelous fulfillment of exactly what God stirred his heart to do. Verse 2, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, here's the proclamation, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And that was true. He was the greatest king on the face of the earth. And he has charged me to, look at that, charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So if he's charged Cyrus, how is Cyrus going to pull it off? He's going to give a carte blanche statement of liberation to the Jewish captives in Babylon. Verse 3, whoever is among you of all his people, May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses. This is verse 5. We're skipping verse 4. We'll come back to it in a minute. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
I hope you see something here. I hope you see that Cyrus's call had everything to do with worship. Look at the title of the first point. God's call to go and rebuild the temple. Committed to worship. For 70 years, the Jews wanted to worship. Could they? They couldn't. Now, they could worship internally, like we all can do. But for, get this, for 70 years, to some, this would not make a big deal today. I could do without church for 70 years. But the people of Israel knew that there was a place where God dwelled. It had been destroyed. It had to be rebuilt so that corporate worship, public worship, could take place. Let me show you why I believe that they couldn't worship. They said so much in Psalm 137. You know, it's interesting. I've read this psalm for a long time. I knew that it basically had something to do with the captivity in Babylon, but I never really put these two things together. This is so marvelous how these things fit together. Here they are, the Jews in Babylon. I don't know at which year this was, but it's recorded that they said this psalm, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Jerusalem, the place of worship. They wept because they couldn't get together and worship. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres. Imagine the piano and the drums. Hang them on the, the trees. There our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing to us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. Again, the Jews had a desire to worship. I, I, I think that by this time, and by the way, you can look at it, that after the Babylonian captivity, the Jews never really had a huge problem with graven images. That was the problem all the way up until the captivity, 70 years earlier. But they just moved to a different kind of idol, by the way, parenthetically. And so it was important to them to rebuild the house of the Lord. To rebuild the house of the Lord for them meant corporate public worship. Now let me make a statement about them that applies to us. To worship God properly they had to come out of Babylon. And folks, so do we. How did they get into Babylon? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Little indiscretions. Oh, we've put away all of our idols. They left the Asherah. And little by little, they got back into it until finally God said, you're all the way 
full-blown idolaters worse than the nations around you, so I will discipline you. Now, by the way, the Jews never unbecame God's covenant people. You got to get that picture. This was, this was discipline for them, not just rank punishment. God doesn't do that with his covenant people. This was severe discipline so that they could ache for the worship, the true worship of God. And if we are going to do that, we've got to come out of Babylon too. Uh, What do I mean by that? Okay, try to follow along. Are you with me? Everyone worships something or someone either the true God or a false God. And what we see that I just explained a minute ago was a downward spiral that we have looked at before. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about this. Do not go on, do, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, that anyone, he's talking to Christians, your slaves of the one whom you obey. For just as you once presented the members of your body, that could be everything, physical, your, your mind, your will, and emotions, you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Do you see the downward spiral? Have you ever seen that happen in the life of a Christian? Has it ever happened to you? I, I mean, even, even our students, you, you just yield a little, a little part. Satan's not out to come and get you just full-blown. He just wants to chip away a little bit at a time, and a little bit at a time, and pretty soon he's got you down that spiral as a slave to impurity. It can happen even so innocently. Curiosity. We, we normally, again normally talk about our our children and students. You have to be careful with curiosity. Curiosity in the ways of sin can catch you. Adults, do we have to be vigilant too? So could I ask you to do something about that so that you won't be slaves in disobedience? Stop dipping and dabbing. A friend of mine used to say that would ask him how someone in his church was doing. Oh, he kind of comes and he kind of doesn't come. He's dipping and dabbing. It can happen even innocently. Curiosity. When I was a kid, this dates me, okay? Some of you might remember these kinds of things. We had an old washing machine that sat out on the back porch. It was a screened-in back porch. That's where my mother did her washing, and then she would take it out on the, the line. Anybody of you remember having a clothesline and hang up? We didn't have a dryer. The washing machine was a big round tub, and it had on top of the tub rollers. Okay, are you with me? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Okay, ask, Google this at home, old washing machines. It was electric, so at least it was updated a little bit. But I was, as a little guy, I don't remember how old, but young enough to be really, really stupid. 
And I was, I was very curious about those rollers that were going around as the, the, the clothes were washing because my mother would pick up the clothes after they were washed. And rather than a spin cycle, she just ran them through. It was electric, so it was going, the rollers. She would run them through the rollers. And I was looking at it one day, and she said, Marty, stay away from those rollers. What happens when someone says, stay away from, <laughs> fill in the blank. As, probably just as soon as she was out of eyesight, I got a stool, I went over, I got up on the stool, dipping and dabbing, and I did this with my hand. Oh, hey, I didn't touch it, just did like that, playing with it. I got bolder, touched it touched it, and all of a sudden, like an alligator, it reached out. I'm sure I didn't. It reached out and grabbed me. It took a life of its own and started rolling up my fingers. Now, it does give some, but I, th I thought it was just going to take my whole body. I really did, and I, it, for like two seconds, I tried to be brave because I, I, do, do I face the wrath of my mom or of the washing machine? I don't know which is worse. And I yelled, Mom, help. And she came and she turned it off and released the rollers. Was that innocent? Well, God tells us sometimes, don't do that. Don't, don't even look at it. Get away from it. Stop doing that. Stop playing with it. Because it's not innocent. It will lead you on that downward spiral to being a slave trapped in sin. So what do you do? The next verse says this. And, and this is all about worship. This is what the people of God were stirred to do. And here's what I would say. If we read it a minute ago. God stirred his people to go back. Pray that God would stir his covenant people at Heritage to a renewed commitment to worship. What is worship? Who's the worship pastor of the church? You know, th those things will tell you a lot about how you view worship. Here's how Paul views worship. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, rather than present your bodies to slaves of disobedience and sin, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's an ongoing thing. That's every day. That's tonight when you go home. That's tomorrow when you get up. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God. That is your spiritual worship. And then he goes on. He says, let me flesh this out. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed as you, as you do some changing here. You need to input some new information. Transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In terms of worship, people tend to get up, caught up in the here and now. 
And so many of you would define, if somebody asks you, how was worship this week? You're going to go back to this hour. And you're going to base your answer on certain elements that had a lot to do with emotion. Worship is not something that happened last Sunday and it's happening right now. Worship is something that happens every day. And all we do when we come in here is to express the worship that's been going on all week long. That's why he says, by the mercies of God, your level of worship a few minutes ago, your level of worship right now and during the Lord's Supper, everything we do today will rise no higher than the level of you seeing the mercies of God in your life. And I've said it over and over again, our goal, my goal, is not to evoke emotions. Emotions are okay, but they cannot be the motivating factor. Our goal is not to evoke a feeling, but our goal is to meet with the living God and show forth His glory. So worship is sacrificial obedience to the truth. Feelings may certainly be evoked, but ideally they're a response to the truth. Let me just say this because it is such, all my ministry life, maybe there was a time when they didn't do this, but that was before my time and I've been a pastor for a long time and a minister, youth minister for a long time. Music is not the origin of worship. It can be an expression of it. Worship is what happens in our hearts and lives every day. So let me ask the question, they were committed to worship. Are we committed to true sacrificial worship? Second thing, Let's read Ezra chapter 1 verse 5, and then we're not going to read the whole second chapter, okay, just first verse or so. Then rose up the heads of the houses of Judah. The second point has to do with God's remnants return to Judah, the ones who went back, committed to community and service. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Now, these were the people of the the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into captivity. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Okay. Do you find a lot of lists in the Bible? All right. Is the whole Bible inspired and even effective? Yeah. Even lists? What can we learn from a list? Well, we can learn a few things. Let me just share a couple of things that that I gleaned this last week. Out of one million Jews, remember that's what we said, how many went back? How many? 
If you want to know the answer to that, you look at chapter 2, verse 64. I can tell you exactly how many went back. One million Jews said, you're free to go. I mean, uh, we're we're told you're free to go. Out of that, 42,360 made the journey. How do you know? Because it's in the Bible. How's it in the Bible? How did they know? Because they did a head count. That's, that's pretty significant. And by the way, there are names listed here. They knew every name, and they took account. And when they came to the end of it, they didn't say 42,359 went. And we're not sure about that one other. He used to come around a lot. I don't see him much anymore. I wonder what's happened to him. Have you called him? Remnant. You, you know how much that is? Do the math. I did it this morning because I'm not that guy. I have to sometimes sit down and figure it out. Roughly 40,000. John, you're good at math. What is that? That's 4%. Listen, 4% of the people went back. Was that going to be enough? Was it? To, to, to build a, a temple and to fight against enemies and all of the rest of that stuff? Well, we'll get to the end. The third point tells us, yeah, with God's provision, it is enough. So, why didn't the other 96% go back to Judah? Well, 900 miles. Difficult. That, that, by the way, that was on foot. Carts, horses and donkeys and, and things like that. But basically, 900 miles through a a, a terrible wilderness with all kinds of enemies. Now, okay, let's give some of the Jews that stayed behind, the 960,000 Jews, give or take, that didn't go. Some were too old, all right? I I was thinking, wow, when, when they were carried into captivity, if I brought that up to today, I would have been one year old when, the, when my people went into captivity. Babylon would be all I knew. Settle down there. Well, maybe some people were too old. Maybe some people were too young. And, and that's all right. Maybe some people were disabled or maybe some people were too comfortable, familiar with their surroundings. Zerubbabel, can can you guarantee my safety? This worship thing, can you guarantee that I'm going to be safe? Can you guarantee that I'm going to be comfortable? You know, know, there's an interesting passage. I don't know that you've seen this. This goes back to the prophet Jeremiah 100 years before. This This is kind of interesting. What did, they were going to be there for 70 years. God knew it, they knew it. What did God tell them to do during the 70 years? He told them to settle down and get busy 
and be productive and be a good part of your culture. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons. This is all from within their community. We're going to find that in the last couple of chapters of Ezra. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they might bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. While you're in Babylon, don't just sit there and have a pity party. Get busy. Do something. And then he said something that's pretty incredible. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare in its welfare you will find your welfare I, I, I just thought of the ways in which we need to pray for the Babylon in which we live I'm talking about our world perhaps our culture not always just cast it off and Say it's horrible? No. Pray, pray for it. Pray for the, the place where we are strangers and exiled, exiles in this world. But can you, can you see how this might become, now watch, an excuse. Seventy years have gone by. You've had kids. You've had grandkids. You've had great-grandkids. I'm an old man. All my family is there. And all of a sudden, I get this call to go back. And I'm thinking to myself, I, 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 900 miles? Hard journey? I, I don't know what's going to be waiting for me there. I, you know, I, I just think I'll stay here. The probability is be more comfortable and, and, and probably be safer. And can't I do a good job here, Lord? It's not wrong to make good use of where God puts you. The key was he told them to settle there, not be comfortable there. His goal for them was always, after 70 years, to come out. Okay, look at me, everybody. God calls every one of us. We're God's covenant people. We can't lose our salvation as I read the scriptures. But we can sure hunker down and get comfortable in Babylon. And if we're going to come out of Babylon into worship and community, God calls us to take the step and commit Remember, you've heard this over and over again, good can become enemy of the best. And by the way, I'll just throw this in. Did those who stayed behind, did they avoid hardship? How do you know? The book of Esther. And we'll get to that a little bit later on. Another powerful picture of this is the, the picture that I've been talking about, community. Again, they knew who was there and they knew who was missing. I, I, I don't know, if, I really, after all these years of being a pastor, I don't know how we can fully get there, 
But that's really what church is supposed to be. Let me just be, uh, not, not the church, but us, Heritage Baptist Church. To a non-Christian, Heritage Baptist Church is a purely voluntary organization of individuals with no real commitment to one another, and they come and go as they please. But a true Christian who's been taught understands biblically that once you are a part of Christ, you've chosen Christ, you must choose His people too. There is absolutely no such thing in Scripture as a believer truly saved living in isolation from other Christians, and I'm talking about the local church. Now, I'll smile when I say that, but that is absolutely the truth, and you, you might be rattling off names of people that have been loosely affiliated with all kinds of churches. No, 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 don't do that with Heritage Baptist Church, and you're thinking, Pastor, are you talking about them? No Christian who is truly saved, the Bible knows nothing of it, we know everything about it. Nothing of a truly saved individual living in isolation from the local church. Let me give you a couple of pictures of this. Paul in Ephesians, he writes this, and then I'll give you one from 1 Peter. He talks about the one new man. That's what he's talking about here, taking the two, one new man. We both have access, one spirit to the Father. So then, we are no longer, this is every member of our church, strangers and aliens, we are part of the family. We're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. We are a holy temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's us corporately. First Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen race. This is us, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, or people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies. This is the purpose of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I made an announcement at the very beginning of the service. Anybody remember what it was? What was I trying to do with that announcement? Membership Matters is the name of our membership course. It's two hours. You know what I was really trying to get out of that? Join the church. You waiting for a, a, a disclaimer? There's really not one. And if not our church, then find the church by the grace of God that you need to be a part of and join the church. Why? Because if you're truly saved, you cannot be isolated from the local church. Okay, I'm going to use an analogy, and I'm going to ask some questions. <sighs> I need to take a breath. Okay. Do you? 
Is the church, is heritage, let's, let's draw it in, is the church more like a cruise ship? You've heard this analogy. Or a battleship? Okay, now wait, wait, wait. What questions are at? What questions do you ask, did you ask before you joined the church? I'm going to give a couple. And, uh, okay. Is Heritage like a cruise ship where I am on vacation and I'm here for my pleasure to get away from the stresses of life where I am here to relax and be served? Here are some questions that if that, if that, now, now wait a minute, there are some people, I'm not talking about preference, and obviously we all have our preferences, but I'm talking about where preferences dominate. So here are some questions that you might ask of a cruise ship church. Do I like the shows? Is the entertainment good? Are the captain and his crew nice? Okay. Can they ensure my safety and comfort? Is the service good? Are all my needs met properly? Am I well fed? Are there self-enrichment and fun activities like ballroom dancing or Zumba on this cruise? Talking about the church. Will I be assured that no one <laughs> will get my lounge chair on the deck if I'm late in the morning? <laughs> Can I get my money back if this cruise ship is not for me? Wow. Or is the church more like a battleship where we have, we have been called and commissioned by the commander-in-chief? Are we here to fight and to win a war, no matter what the sacrifice. So here are the questions you would ask about heritage. Does the battleship have a clear and noble, I would add, biblical lesson? I mean mission. Are the captain and his crew committed to that mission? Does the captain submit to a higher authority? Is the crew properly trained and equipped for battle? Do they take the battle seriously? Does the battleship have adequate first aid and medical help? And can the battleship endure the storms at sea? If you believe that culturally and worldwide that our world is in a storm then you do not want to be on a cruise ship. Well, you can be because a cruise ship docks during a storm, during the battle. A battleship sets out to sea. Okay, I, I want to address, I know not all the teenagers are sitting here. I, I don't know that you thought about this. Do you believe that there were teenagers on that trip among the 42-some-odd thousand? Do you believe there were teenagers on that trip and children? I don't know that you've ever thought about it. We most, most often think, well, they were all adults. Do you think that there were teenagers? 
Do you think they were children? What do you think the primary concern of those leaders on that months-long journey, 900 miles was? Safety might have been one. You know what might have been another one? Preparing those kids for battle and even death. John Piper had a seminar, a program. A, it was a, a time where he was, they were, it was a Muslim awareness seminar. They had a kid's day. And so here's what he said to his parents about the children's day. He made this announcement. I am mobilizing martyrs these days. I'm telling you parents up front, what I'm asking you parents to do this Saturday at our church is to bring your children to the Muslim Awareness Seminar to instill in them a mindset that will enable them to die for Jesus someday. So don't bring your kids if you don't want that to happen. That's training for community. Last application, chapter 1, verse 4, and verses 6 through 7. This is marvelous. God's provision for the task. I'll read it, give a verse, and then we'll segue into the Lord's Supper. Look at this. Let each survivor, that's part of the remnant, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place. So even those left behind... Had a, had a service to fulfill. You know, in missions, there are really only three responses that we can give. We can be giver, uh, we can be goers, we can be givers and senders, or we can be disobedient. So those left behind, for whatever reason, they got to get in on the joy of sending those, quote, missionaries, the remnant, out. Lady survivor, whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place, with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares. Beside all of this was offered freely. And even a pagan king got in on it. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of God that Nebuchadnezzar, 70 years prior, had carried away from Jerusalem and placed them in the house of his, of, of his gods. Why did God tell him to do that? Because they had to have those things for worship. God is Jehovah Jireh. And what, listen, whatever task that he has placed on your heart and there are tasks that we have. I'm talking about being a follower of Christ. I'm talking about being a parent or a child or a husband or a wife or a work associate or a member of a church. Whatever he has called you to do, he will provide the resources necessary for you to complete the task. You know how I know? Because he didn't spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. How will he not also, 
freely give us all things that we need. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word, empowered by your spirit, is what stirs. It's not the words of man or the emotions of a service or whatever else. It is your word, which is not only inspired and sufficient and clear, it's also effective when empowered by your Holy Spirit. So I pray that you would do your work in your way, through your word and your spirit. If there is someone here who is not a follower of Christ, a believer, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That man, woman, young person, child would see the weight of their sins that they cannot do anything about, but see the the marvelous sacrifice of Christ on Calvary's cross. The fact that he gave his body to be broken and his blood to be shed for even the worst of sinners. God, I pray that today someone would receive Christ, the Savior and Lord of their lives. And then help us as we make a commitment to renewed worship, uh, a commitment to being with the covenant people that you have called out here at Heritage Baptist Church and to know that you will meet every need that we have according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would help us to remember the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.